The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. So you haven't noticed by now, we are starting a new series in the book of Ephesians. And I'm very, very excited because this is a very, very rich text. If you're visiting, you don't know me, my name is Christian by name and game, and I'm the new assistant pastor, and uh, I have the wonderful privilege of just unpacking today's passage. So we're going to begin with Ephesians in chapter 1, and as the uh, little video from the Bible Project has shown us, it starts with this beautiful Jewish poem where the Apostle Paul praises God the Father for what he's done in Jesus Christ. And uh, we will specifically focus on verses 11 to 14 today because I found this is a passage that many of us wrestle with. I could have picked something easier, but I thought let's take a difficult topic so that we can really benefit from it. So before we start, let's commit it to God. Hey, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that has been inspired through your Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, that it's not just a beautiful ancient text, but it's the very word of God. And because it is your word, Lord, we don't want to just read it as a natural text with natural eyes, but help us to see with spiritual eyes. So Holy Spirit, we call upon you who live in us as you are the one who inspired its writings. We ask that you be the one to decode it, to unpack it, to interpret it. May it not just be information, Lord, but may it be inspiration that leads to transformation in our lives. So we commit this time To you, Lord, open our hearts. May it be fruitful ground for the seeds of your words to be planted that good fruit may come from it. In Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, amen. All right. Well, if we were to summarize the book of Ephesians in three words, it would be life in Christ. And we've titled it Live the Life. Okay. It's not like Ricky Martin living the vida loca but living the Vida Christos, all right? Now, how many of you have heard of the game Tug of War? Anyone? All right, so it's a game, it's actually a sport. I didn't know that. Where two teams, they pull on opposite ends of a rope with the goal of bringing the rope a certain distance, maybe into a mud pit, okay, in one direction, not the boy band, but as in one direction, okay, against the force of the opposing team's pull. And... Sometimes if one team's really, really nasty, they'll just let go. What happens? The other team goes flying back into the other direction. And so what we learn from this illustration is it's the tension that keeps both teams on their feet. And likewise, the Christian life is marked by tensions, which we are not able to resolve, but we're actually called to embrace. For example, the same Jesus who says, go into all the world, is the same Jesus who says, come to me, and I will give you rest. The same Jesus who is a loving, gracious, kind Savior, is also the returning king and judge with a sword. Tension. And as we look at the passage today, we're going to see the tension of God's sovereignty on one end, and our human responsibility on the other end playing out in salvation. 
And so as we unpack the Bible, not just today, but in all of our life, we will run into ideas that will frankly blow our minds. Because we are talking about the God of the cosmos who holds the universe in the very palm of his hands. I mean, have you ever tried to explain quantum physics to a toddler? See how that goes. And the, the intellectual difference between God and our minds and that of you, a toddler, is so much greater. So we should not be surprised when there are parts of God that are difficult for us to fit inside our little minds and accept. I mean, God would be like the ocean and our minds would be a thimble. And that's being generous. So we are going to see some tension in today's text, which is Ephesians 1, 11 to 14. So if you want to turn there with me or switch on your device, but let's go. And we read. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the big idea in this passage is that in Christ, God is fulfilling his plan according to his will to save a people to himself to the praise of his glory. And so when Paul writes this, it's a response to what he did before as he's unpacking what God has done. And Paul is just getting swept up in worship. He's excited. And so if we, after reading this passage, if our response is gloom, disappointment, and discouragement, instead of like Paul, joy, humility, awe, gratitude, and praise, then I would suggest we don't quite understand that this is great news for Paul that he takes great comfort in. Because he is writing about how our loving and gracious God poured out these immeasurable riches of salvation unto us undeserving, glory-stealing, and self-exalting spiritual criminals whom he adopts into his family as his children according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his name. And so I believe that our worship and our prayer life and our boldness will go to a whole nother level when we embrace the tension of both God's sovereignty and our very real responsibility. So let's start. Verse 11. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. The P word. There it is. <laughs> All right. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Predestined sounds a lot like God is the active one here doing the saving. God's sovereignty. But let's not stop there. Let's look at verse 13. In him you also, when you 
heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Human responsibility. We embrace the tension. And so right here, God's sovereignty and human responsibility are right next to each other. Hashtag mind blown. Hashtag can't even get my head around that one. Through the Bible, these two realities exist side by side, never contradicting each other, but totally friends. And so we don't get to pick either or, because it's a both and. God is sovereign in salvation, and we are very accountable for our choices before him. Both stand together. And we're not trying to resolve this tension, but we are biblically called to embrace it with our whole being and refusing to pit them against each other or water them down in any way. Because if we let go of God's sovereignty side in this tug of war, you know what's going to happen? We're going to, like that poor team, fall back into a human exalting understanding of our salvation that robs God of his glory and our will becomes the ultimate place in the universe. And it's all about me. But on the other hand, if we let go of the human responsibility side in this tug of war, then we will strip away our our accountability to holiness, evangelism, and prayer, and faith and repentance. And so we need to reject both extremes by not letting go of either side of these realities. Now, I don't know about you, but in 20 years, I have found that many react strongly to the word predestination. They freak out. They lose their minds at each other. Matt and Marilyn, good friends of Michelle and I from way back, we used to do university ministry. And man, it was like a war field sometimes when we had our Bible study with university students. I mean, saying predestination is like insulting your mother. You know, you throw it out there in a, you know, uh, connect group, and the, suddenly the air gets sucked out of the room. <gasps> and you can hear a pin drop, right? So let's try to declutter this word a bit, all right? So the word used for predestination in the original Greek is prorizo, and it literally means to decide beforehand. And so while it is not difficult to understand the meaning of this word, it is difficult to accept. If you look early in verse 4 to 5, Paul writes, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, this is a lot my story too. Many, myself included, have tried to resolve this tension by saying, you know, God is all-knowing, and because he knows everything, he knows who's going to choose him, Right? So whoever who's going to choose him, he's going to predestine. And as entertaining as theological gymnastics is, it's not saying that here. It's saying that God made a decision beforehand in salvation. And this causes a lot of objections in my life, myself. And so, again, I have tried to prove that this text did not mean what it clearly meant. And I have found there are four main objections that I've experienced, and I hear a lot of people experience and hear throughout all the years when it comes to predestination. And so, church, can I just be really honest? It is totally okay not to have figured it out. 
or to have landed there yet. I mean, it, it, it's taken me years as I wrestled with this. So I don't expect you to have it all figured out in the next 30 minutes. Can I just say, the smarter you are, then the more questions you're going to have about this because you're thinking through the implications. But if we say, you know what? Makes perfect sense. No problem. You're probably dumb. <laughs> right? Sorry, I offended you in Jesus' name. So can I encourage us to be humble? Because we're all wrestling through this very difficult truth. And so you can be part of team Arminianism and free will, or you can be part of team Calvinism with predestination, or you can be part of team Parramatta Eels. It doesn't matter to me, okay? There is space for all tribes at Parramatta Christian Church. But as these objections are real, let's try to unpack them a bit, okay? So the first objection is this, and, and these are ones that I've had all, is the emotional objection. I call this the Pauline Hansen objection. I just don't like it. <laughs> all right? I do not like to talk about God being the predestining and choosing one because it makes me feel like I'm out of control. Newsflash, you were never in control, all right? Nobody likes finding out that they're actually not the boss. Who's had young kids? How often have you had to tell them, you are not the boss now? Go to bed, all right? Our natural reaction to God's sovereignty is to be totally repulsed by it. Why is that? It's because most of us, despite being very multicultural here, but most of us have been products of Western democracy and expressive individualism, which tells us everyone should get a vote and we can be anything we want to be because we're a special snowflake. And Jesus is lucky to have us on the team. So of course God's sovereignty is going to rub us the wrong way. But can I just say, church, just because we don't like it does not negate the reality of it. Let me give you a really down-to-earth example. I do not like my metabolism in my 40s, especially after Christmas. I mean, in my late teens, my metabolism and I were best friends. I mean, you know how people talk about eating clean six days and having one cheat day? I had cheat days seven days a week. I mean, we would finish youth, and I would order the triple quarter pounder, and we would just eat and eat and not gain a single pound. Then the 30s rolled around, and my metabolism looked at my body and said, I'm going to end you. I mean, I used to eat, eat, eat Maccas like there was going to be a burger recession just around the corner. Now, all I have to do is drive past the Golden Arches, and my metabolism says, I saw that! I'm sending five kilos to your butt right now. I do not like my metabolism in my 40s, but it doesn't change the reality. Not liking something does not change the reality of it. And that's the same with this. You know, we, we, sometimes we say statements like this. I could never believe in a God who blank. And then we, we fill the blank with something that's been clearly presented in the Bible. Can I just suggest that that is not God of the Bible? That is God in the mirror. So we need to be so careful if the God we worship does not contradict us and does not offend our sensibilities. Because what we've done is we've created a little Jesus 
in our own image. We've created a mini-me, if you know that movie from way, way back, okay? Most of you don't because that shows you my age. All right, let's keep going. So the question is, if we have created a Jesus in our own image, how is an exaggerated and an idealized version of ourselves ever going to save us? So the emotional reaction is real. I get it. But it doesn't change the reality. Then we say things like this. The next objection is the experience objection. I decided to follow Jesus. I chose life. I trusted in Jesus. I said the sinner's prayer. I can tell you my testimony, 12th of February, 1994. That day, I wrote that date in my Bible. I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad that God made himself available, but I chose him, not the other way around. To which the biblical answer is, yeah, sort of. Let's look at Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. What did God do? If you were to summarize this passage, it says he blessed us and he chose us. Interesting enough, not once in the New Testament is the language of choose, chose, or chosen ever applied to something we do to God. But it's always something God does to us. In love, he chose us. He predestined us. He adopted us. He redeemed us. He lavished his grace upon us. He forgave us. He made known the mysteries of his will to us. He sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit, and he guarantees an inheritance. Who is the active one here? God. And what do we do? Verse 13. We heard and we believed. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. We embrace the tension. So yes, in one sense, we made a decision to follow Jesus. That's why we sing that song. I have decided to follow Jesus. How does it go? No turning back. No turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. So absolutely. All right? But again, that decision is not what started salvation. It was a response to God's saving work through the Holy Spirit's regenerating work in our hearts. It's he who predestined, but we chose. We loved. We responded in faith. Corpses cannot make better choices. Why? They're too busy being dead. All right? We need to be made alive. Our belief is in response to the defibrillator of the Holy Spirit. Someone's had cardiac arrest, can't def defibrillate themselves. They need someone else on the outside to come in and shock them to life. Hopefully not like Mr. Bean who takes a car battery and tries to shock someone alive. Okay? I mean, think about the conversion story of the Apostle Paul who's writing this. How did he get saved? You remember the story? Wrote to Damascus? Jesus literally knocked him off his ass, as in donkey. Okay? He revealed himself to him, and Paul responded in saving faith. Who initiated that? Jesus. That's why he gets all the glory, and that's okay. It's, it's good when God gets the glory. All right? I mean, on the other hand, I once thought, you know, wouldn't it be really strange if one day you rocked up in heaven, you've passed the, the gates of glory, and Jesus is there, and he stands up and goes, good choice, well done, great decision. Hey, everyone, have a look at what he's done. Look how well they've chosen. Wouldn't it be odd if Jesus gives a standing ovation 
for the choices we made. No, what the scripture says, it says, every eye will look at the lamb on the throne who saved a people to his own possession, singing salvation belongs to the Lord. Which begs the question, if God chose us and everything we do is just a response to that, then how is that not stepping on our free will? And the Bible would say God's choice is never against our will, but it's consistent with it. And Jesus explained this in John 6, 44. You want to turn there with me or look at the screen? It says, no one can come to me, human responsibility, unless the Father who sent me draws him. God's sovereignty. And the word draw here in the Greek is helkuo. And it's got this imagery of an irresistible magnet pulling us in. It's like a starving person being drawn to a paramedic Christian church morning tea. Okay, you know what they're like. This church loves food. It goes without saying. God draws us to himself by creating in us a hunger for Jesus that was not there before. And we respond in faith. You see, the problem isn't that we can't choose God, it's that we won't on our own. So when the Bible describes our will apart from Jesus, it does not use the language of freedom. It uses language like we were slaves to sin. Romans 3.11 says, no one seeks God. And as we choose according to our nature and our deepest desires, we need someone to transform our nature and desire. And so in salvation, God changes our heart so that we want Him. Any, any uni students here? How many have you got? Let me just see. Just one. Okay. I don't know about you, but at my time, uni was a crazy time. People really were into alcohol. Are they still like that? All right, it hasn't changed. All right, so when I was at uni many, many moons ago, there was a fellow student who was drunk, which is kind of like you're used to that. But the problem is he was standing on the second floor. And he was convinced that he was an Olympic far jumper. And he could jump into the swimming pool below, which was five meters away from the ledge of the balcony. All the bystanders, please, did not change his mind. And as he was convinced that he could safely leap into the pool below, he jumped and he missed. He survived, thank God. But he broke his hip in four places and had to bolt to the other screen. He was in the wheelchair for several months. Not nice. Not pretty. He chose according to his drunk nature. And I wish at that point that I could have removed his drunkenness so that he could see that for him to jump meant injury or even death. And for him to respond to my drawing would have been life. He would have chosen 100% of the time, every time, to follow my drawing because his nature would have been changed with the deception of alcohol removed. And that's what God has done to us. When he removes sin's deception by the Holy Spirit's regenerating work so that now we have a hunger Okay, so the question then is, why us and not others? Which leads us to the next 
objection, and that's the fairness objection. Why are not all saved? Why does a loving God choose to save some and not others if he is the one choosing? That is a really good question. And if we have not wrestled with that question, then maybe our hearts are callous because we should feel that tension. And so I wanted to say it's totally okay to wrestle with that question. Because we know that in God's heart and loving disposition, His desire is to bring all to repentance, that none should perish. But we also know that not all are saved. It is a good question, but it's the wrong question. The correct question is, how could a perfectly just, holy, and righteous God save anyone? And the answer is that he does is pure mercy. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine that two people who are beating you up, okay, because they absolutely despise you. And after they're done, for some reason, you, you get up and you say to one of them, hey, mate, I love you. Here's a hundred bucks. That's mercy. Now the other guy protesting, hey, that's not fair. Where's my hundred bucks? Excuse me? <laughs> What's fair is that they're both charged with assault and sentenced to prison instead of one of them getting a hundred dollars and your love. You see, church, if we start with the position that everyone deserves salvation, then we have lost sight of a spiritual criminal reality that we have grown up with. That we're not worshiping God, not loving God, not enjoying God, not submitting to God, but instead wanting to be God and living for our own glory. Because if we think that, we deny grace, which is undeserved favor. And so we need to be so careful when we bring that word fair to a holy and just God. What is fair is that we all get judgment. What is mercy is that he saves any. Now, there's a second problem with this objection, and that's this question. Do we really think that God is stingy? Is God stingy with salvation? Because in some way, this objection is saying that if I were God, I could do so much better. And the question we could ask ourselves is, do we really think that we are more good, more just, more loving than he is? Because when you think about it, this is actually the most loving positions that is available. Because if our will is the final deciding factor in salvation, then what happens to the millions of babies that are miscarried and aborted in the womb every year? They, they never had a chance to make a choice. And I have come to accept that God chooses and that they are safe in his mercy. What about those who are mentally incapacitated? Let me tell you a quick story. Many, many years back, there was a Swiss couple, and they had their first son. And this son was born with severe disabilities. I mean, he was almost a vegetable in a wheelchair. Couldn't respond to the outside world. And as a result, this couple started searching for meaning in life and asking, why did this happen? And as part of this search, they found Jesus, or Jesus found them. They had two more kids, and their second son, as a result, one time came into the room of his brother who was severely disabled, and he saw an angel sitting on the bed. 
like glowing. I mean, nothing's happened to everyone. And this angel's saying that your brother's time will come soon and God will take him home. As a result of that experience, that brother started sharing the gospel like crazy in the school. And I was one of the persons who got saved as a result. And after a certain time passed, that brother passed away because the Lord decided it was for him to go. Now, from the outside, you couldn't tell whether this person has made a decision for Jesus. But from what my friend Robert tells me and the angelic visitation, God chose in mercy. Jesus is sovereign in salvation. And he has wronged nobody. If our good and loving King Jesus chooses, then there is more hope than if we choose. Which brings us to the final and one of the biggest objections that I've had and I've heard people say. And it's this. If God is sovereign, then I don't need to do anything. If God is sovereign, then why pray? Why share the gospel or do anything? Because he's going to accomplish his will anyway. How does that motivate evangelism and prayerfulness? And that, again, is a really good question, but, again, is the wrong question. The right question is, what is the point of prayer and evangelism if God is not sovereign? Because if he sent us on the Great Commission and it's all up to us, how successful are we going to be? We're in trouble. In his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, J.I. Packer writes, if you pray, then I know that you believe in the sovereignty of God. Why? Because prayer is an admission that we're inferior that we are powerless, that we are incapable, and God is all-powerful, God is capable, so we appeal to His sovereignty. Even the way we pray for unsaved loved ones shows that we actually believe in the sovereignty of God. I mean, I assume that when we pray for unsaved loved ones, we don't pray like this, hopefully. All right, just imagine for a moment. Lord, I pray that you would arrange things in their lives and get them to a point where they can make a good decision about you. But don't interfere with their will. Don't draw their hearts. Don't change their desires because they'll be overstepping the line. Anyone pray like that? I hope not. No. How do we pray for our loved ones? God, save them. Grab a hold of them. Turn their eyes from worthless things to you. Let their sin turn to ash in their mouths. Change their hearts. In other words, God, do a sovereign work in them. You see, not only do prayer and evangelism depend on God's sovereignty, but God has also sovereignly ordained prayer and gospel proclamation to be the specific means through which predestination from eternity past becomes an experienced reality in the here and the now. And that is why the Apostle Paul, after he's scaling these breathtaking heights in Romans 8 and 9, where he talks about God's sovereignty, he drops it right back down like a DJ to the base, okay, to mission on the ground. In Romans 10, 14 to 15, it says, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they here without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Human responsibility. 
we embrace the tension. God is not just sovereign over the end results of salvation, but he's also sovereign over the means towards those ends in salvation. And historically, those who had a high view of God's sovereignty most radically advanced the name of Jesus because they would deeply come to him in prayer. For example, there was an evangelist and a director of the Ashley Downs Orphanage in Bristol in the UK. His name was George Müller, good German name, all right? He cared for 10,000 orphans and he provided educational opportunities for them to the point where he was accused of, hey, you're helping the poor too much. Don't do that. He had a high view of God's sovereignty and his prayer life was amazing. Is our prayer life deeper than his? Is our sense of social justice stronger than that of William Wilberforce who led the slave abolition movement and from which the song Amazing Grace came out? He had a high view of God's sovereignty. And he didn't say or sing, Kesera, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. He didn't. No, his high view of God's sovereignty propelled him out to action. He did something about it because of whom he was serving. Do we have more courage than the mighty pioneers of mission over the last 300 years of church history? I was just talking to Kevin before the service, and I wrote Kevin at Alpha Cruz. He, he teaches cross-cultural missions, uh, ministry, which includes missions. And some of the pioneers of, of mission are like William Carey and David Livingston, Amy Carmichael, Jim Elliott. You can read up about them. They were propelled by God's sovereignty to go into the mission field. Because a high view of God's sovereignty did not diminish bold praying. But it was the foundation of it. A high view of God's sovereignty did not diminish evangelistic witness, but it empowered and amplified it. If the band would come up, please. And as we close, church, when we embrace this tension of God's sovereignty and salvation and our very real responsibility I believe that our prayers will become bigger because the vision to whom we are praying becomes bigger. Our witness will become bolder because we will realize that Jesus has not abdicated his position of Savior to us. He is doing the heavy lifting by changing people's hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we have been swept up in a mission that cannot fail. Not one drop of Christ's blood will ever be wasted. And so, this is where it lands practically for us. As we scatter off in our weeks and streets where we work, study, and live, we can go in boldness and share the gospel, knowing that God will work through those means to bring a people to himself. When you pray for your wayward friends, family, your wayward child, your loved ones who do not know Jesus yet, you can pray with confidence because you're praying to a God 
who has sovereignly appointed the means of prayer as a vehicle for accomplishing His will. You know, almost every night before I go to bed, I lay my hands on the heads of my two sons when we get the service today. And I pray that Jesus would bring them to Himself. And one night, my youngest Theodore is quite a character. As I'm praying that, he goes, Papa, why do you keep praying that we get to know Jesus? We already know Him. And my response was, hey, we can always get to know more, hey? God works through these means. We can live with assurance because God finishes what He begins. We can live with humility because we are saved by grace. And we can live with boldness because we have been swept up into a mission that cannot fail. And so my prayer is that this encourages many of you today. And for others, it might be something you need to wrestle through. That's okay. Let me just encourage us to continue to embrace the tension and worship with grateful, humble, praising hearts as we reflect that in a mysterious way, before the foundation of the world, God knew us and set His love upon us. You know, maybe you're here today and you're asking, how do I know whether this means? Am I predestined? And I can tell with you with all assurance, if there is a hunger in your heart that has been magnetized towards Jesus, who is becoming more precious and beautiful and worthy in your estimation, and you, you don't want to sin anymore, you don't want to rule your broken life, then that is God in one sense, the ball is now totally in your heart. He calls you to respond by believing and putting your trust in Him. God's sovereignty and our response. We embrace the tension. Let's pray. Father, help us to see that your bigness and majesty is not in the way our joy, but the source and hope of it. Help us to worship now with glad and thankful hearts because you love us. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Why don't we stand as we worship God in song and we reflect on the word that was just shared. And I want to invite the altar, have the altar open with two people. One, if you are wrestling with this, and it is a big topic, prayer to, to help you through this journey. We'll be more than happy the elders and us to lay hands on you and pray for you. Or maybe you have got unsaved loved ones and your heart like mine is absolutely breaking. I get quite choked up when I share this because this isn't just theory. This is, this is real life. And you just want to come forward and you want to us to pray with you for your unsaved loved ones. We will stand with you and we will believe God's sovereign work be done in life. You come to if you feel led and prompted. And the rest of us, we're just going to worship God and thank Him that He's chosen us. And as a result, we'll be responsible in our gospel proclamation, in our prayers for us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. 
To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.